and invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 14. Hallelujah, we are done with chapter 13. We're ready for chapter 14. For those of you that are visiting, we've been studying Matthew now for, well, a long time. I think we started in January of 2012, and uh, we're just down to chapter 14. We want to resume our study of the Matthew's Gospel, and as we do, we let me warn you in advance, it's more scandalous and sordid than anything you'll see on television today. But, that highlights a remarkable characteristic of the Bible. The Bible tells the truth. It deals with things as they really are. And in doing so, in our morning's passage, this morning's passage, it helps us as followers of Jesus Christ in a dark and fallen world to know three very important things. It helps us to know the nature and the character of this world that we're in. It helps us to know what our mission is to be while living in it for a time. And it helps us to know where our hope rests in the midst of it all. Now, this morning's passage here teaches us these things through a story that involves three characters. The evil and fearful King Herod, the bold but imprisoned John the Baptist, and of course, our compassionate and loving Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew's Gospel, as you remember, is the Gospel of the King. It's written primarily for the Jewish people, and its, particularly, its particular viewpoint of Jesus is as a long-awaited king of the Jews. In chapter 13, Jesus had taught the people at large, and his disciples in particular, and he taught them many truths about his kingdom through parables. We call them the kingdom parables because through them we learn much about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. At the end of the chapter, after the parables are completed, we're told that this king then presented himself to the people of his own hometown of Nazareth. But we're told that they were offended at him and didn't believe on him. And we're told in the last verse there of chapter 13 and verse 58, he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And even though they rejected him as their king, he nevertheless still was the king that God had promised to them long ago. Even though he didn't do many mighty works in their midst because of their unbelief, he nevertheless did do them in other places. Now just consider the ways he's already proven himself before this time. We read in Matthew's Gospel uh, how he cleansed a leper in the sight of a large crowd in chapter 8. He cured a centurion's servant of his paralysis. He raised Peter's mother-in-law from her sickbed. He exercised power over the wind and the waves. Uh, he demonstrated authority over the demons. He proved conclusively that he had power on earth to forgive sins in chapter 9. He cured a woman of a life-draining life flow of blood. 
He raised a dead girl to life. He gave sight to two blind men and he gave voice to a mute man. And so everywhere he went, he demonstrated compassion to the people in need, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. And he did these things in the midst of those who opposed him. The scribes and the Pharisees, that is the religious leaders of the day, claimed that he did these miracles because he himself was working in the power of the devil. And yet he made their, their, uh, their claim foolish by healing a crippled man on the Sabbath that they had brought before him in order to trap him. And he did it right inside their synagogue. They plotted to kill him for this and they responded to their Uh, He responded to their threats by withdrawing himself from them and then kept right on healing people elsewhere. And even then, they followed him to oppose him and to accuse him. And even then, he cast a demon out of a man and healed him of his blindness right before their very eyes. The Pharisees responded by insisting that this proved he was operating in the power of the devil. But the crowds of Galilee were awestruck by it, and they kept saying, Is not this the son of David? That is to say, could this be the long-awaited Messiah, the promised king of the Jews? And this leads us to the very first thing we find in the passage we have before us this morning. All of these things finally found their way to the ears of the king over Galilee. The very monarch who ruled over the district in which all these things had been happening. The fact that he hadn't heard about these things before that time simply underscores how uninvolved a ruler he was. The fact that he had so badly misinterpreted them once he heard about them, it simply shows how spiritually dark his soul was. Now we notice here in chapter 14, beginning in verse 1, it says, At at that time Herod the Tetrarch heard of the fame of Jesus and said unto his servants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. Therefore mighty works do show them Uh, show forth themselves in him. Now this is a man we know in history as King Herod Antipas. It's uh, fascinating that he appears uh, in uh, Matthew's presentation of Jesus as the King of Jews. But as you remember, this man's father was Herod the Great, one of the most notorious men in all of history, and he himself was not a Jew. Uh, He was a foreigner, being an Edomite descent. And he ruled over the Jewish people at a time when our Lord Jesus was born. It was to him that the wise men from the east came and said, Where is he that is born king of the Jews? For we have seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. And it was he who, out of the neurotic fear of his newborn threat, this newborn threat to his rule, ordered that every male child born in Bethlehem from two years old and under be put to death. And that was only a mere sampling of his career of cruelty. Herod the Great ruled over the Jewish people, but only as Rome allowed him to rule. At first he declared his son Antipater uh, to be the uh, heir of his throne, and after he uh, later changed his mind and made uh, uh, Antipater's brother Archelaus king, 
After Herod the Great died, the Romans reduced Archelaus's rule to that of Judea and Samaria, and they named his brother Philip as ruler over the northern dis- districts, and then Antipas as the ruler over Galilee. And it was the that last man who Herod is the Herod of our passage this morning. This man, Herod Antipas, as tetrarch, that is, one who rules a group of four, one ruler of a group of four. And he began his rule shortly after Jesus was born and had been ruling for about 32 years at the time of this account. He ruled throughout the time of our Lord's life on earth. His rule ended just a few years after Jesus' crucifixion, a total of 37 years. He was the civic leader over the region in which our Savior grew up and worked and later became, began his public ministry. And over the region where Jesus taught the truths of the kingdom of heaven and performed all those wonder, wonderful miracles. And so that's what makes it so remarkable that Herod Antipas, as it would seem, didn't hear the report about the miracles and wonders that Jesus had been doing until this point in our story. Luke tells us that he said, John have I beheaded, but who is this of whom I hear such things? And he desired to see him. The Son of God was walking in the midst of their own, his own kingdom, and yet he was clueless about it. How could he miss such a monumental thing? You know, sometimes a man's heart can be so filled with darkness, he can't even see the light when it's shining right in front of him. And though Herod apparently didn't know about Jesus, he did know something about the one who announced Jesus' coming. And he turned to his servants and gave his own interpretation of what he heard. In Mark 6.14, that John the Baptist was risen from the dead and therefore mighty works do show themselves in him. He said that because it was him who had put John to death. And so Matthew tells us the story of this terrible crime. Look at verse 3. For Herod had laid a hold on John and bound him and put him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife. For John said unto him, It is not lawful for thee to have her. The whole family of the Herodians was a, uh, an incestuous and immoral bunch. But Herod's behavior in this case caused a scandal that was particularly shocking. The wife of his brother Philip, a woman named Herodias, a woman who was, by the way, Herod the Great's granddaughter and the sister of Herod Antipas that he read, we read about in the 13th chapter, or we read about in the 13th chapter of Acts, had left Philip and had eloped with Antipas. In other words, Herod Antipas lusted after his sister-in-law while still married and then divorced his wife and then married Herodias, who was also his relative, all while his brother Philip was still living. Did I not tell you this was like a soap opera? Uh, Nothing on TV today has anything on this particular story. But that's the way sin is. There was a provision in the law of God given through Moses that called for a man to marry the widow of his childless brother and raise children throughout, uh, through her in his brother's name so that his brother's name would, be, uh, would not be blotted out of Israel and the land would be appointed to him who would not be lost to his uh, descendants. 
But that's not what happened here. That law was not applicable to this case. Herodias was not a widow. Antipas was not doing his brother any favors. It speaks of behavior as a great sin in the Old Testament book of Leviticus. It says in Leviticus 18 and verse 16, Thou shalt not uncover the nakedness of thy brother's wife. It is thy brother's nakedness. And in verse chapter 20, verse 21, it says, And if a man shall take his brother's wife, it is an unclean thing. He hath uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. And so the conduct of Herod Antipas then was nothing more than a matter of incestuous lust. And John the Baptist had spoken out against it. He had dared to go to Herod, perhaps even pointing right at Herodias as he did so and telling him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And what boldness this took, because John no doubt knew what kind of man Herod was, and he knew what Herod was capable of doing to him for this. But as Jesus once asked the crowds about John, what went ye out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken with the wind? Whoever thought that uh, that uh, would have been in uh, of that would have been in for a shock if they thought he was just a, a a weakling. John was no flimsy little reed shaking in the wind. He was a mighty wind that shook the reeds. And so John dared to tell Herod what the law of God said. John dared to shine the light on the king's sin. And what was Herod's response to John? Well, Luke tells us that Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's, brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. And what he did with Herodias was very, very evil. But once John showed him the truth about his sin from the word of God, what he then did with John was even more evil. Apparently, Herod wanted to put John to death. He wanted to silence the righteous tongue of John, and by doing so, silence the condemnation he had received from the word of God. But Matthew goes on to tell us here in verse 5, and when he would have put him to death, he feared the multitude because they counted him as a prophet. Many men today are just like Herod. Uh, they're more afraid of the judgment of men than they are the judgment of God. But here's where we see Herod's moral fearfulness and confusion. Herodias also wanted John dead. But as we read elsewhere in the scripture, we find that there was a curious draw that John still seemed to have on Herod. So Herod prevented her from killing him. And Mark tells us in his gospel, for Herod feared John knowing that he was a just man and, and holy and observed him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Isn't that the way some people are in their sinful, wicked hearts? They hear the truth and they hate it. They rail against it and they fight it. And they argue against it with all their being. And yet, because the Spirit of God continues to convict them that it's the truth that they're hearing, they're still drawn back to hear more. Seemingly lingering and loitering near the truth, but never fully embracing it for their lives. 
The Bible says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Now, how long John had to languish in prison, I'm not sure. Herod vacillated back and forth, but it was plain that God's purpose for John had been completed. His work on earth had come to an end. He had not only pointed faithfully to the law in order to declare sin, but he'd also pointed faithfully faithfully to Jesus and declared, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And now the time of John's release would come. And so Herodias' opportunity was against him. Well, her opportunity was Herod's birthday. Herod threw a great party. And all the nobles and the high officers and all the chief men of Galilee came. The wine, no doubt, flowed freely. And it's then that a supporting character in our story story is introduced. History knows her as Salome. She was the daughter of both Herodias and of the husband that she had left for Antipas. And Matthew tells us here in verse 6, But when Herod's birthday was kept, the daughter of Herodias danced before them and pleased Herod. And this kind of thing was never done by a member of the royal household. Dancing girls in those days were considered to be very immoral. And though we're not uh, told what sort of dance Salome did, we can be pretty sure it wasn't a ballet. Herod was quite frankly a juiced up, dirty old man. And so when the dance was over, He made a drunken and, I suspect, a somewhat lustful promise to this girl. Look at it, verse 7. Whereupon he promised with an oath to give her whatsoever she would ask. Mark tells us how outlandish this promise really was. He said, ask me whatsoever thou wilt, and I will give it to thee. And he swore unto her, whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee unto half of my kingdom. Just stop and consider for a moment how much this man despised the heritage of Israel, that he would give half of his kingdom to a girl who had danced for him and pleased him. Apparently the girl then consulted with her mother, and we read of what is certainly the most notorious request of all of history. In verse 8, it says, And she, being before instructed of her mother, said, Give me here John the Baptist's head in a charger, and the king was sorry. Nevertheless, for the oath's sake, and them that sat with him at meat, he commanded it to be given her, and he sent and beheaded John in prison, and his head was brought in a charge, on a charger and given to the damsel, and she brought it to her mother. Do you notice there it said, Herod was sorry. Yeah, he was sorry. A sorry character is what he was. But he was not sorry enough to repent. You know, you can be sorry for your sin, but you need to be sorry enough to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and follow God. Herod was more concerned about keeping his drunken, hasty promise to a girl than he was about taking the life of a prophet of God. He was more concerned for admiration before men than he was the damnation from God. And so he sent his guards, and and John the Baptist, a man of whom Jesus said, among those born of women there is not risen greater, was suddenly ushered into heaven. 
And that's the last we hear of this creepy girl and her mother. That's a good thing. Because their story explains why Herod was so fearful at the news of Jesus and the marvelous works that he had been doing among the people. He was irrational because of guilt, and he was fearful that it was John the Baptist who had risen from the dead. But then, that the most wonderful character in the story is brought to our attention in verse 12. And his disciples came and took up the body and buried it and went and told Jesus. Remember, Jesus loved John. Though there's no doubt, as the Son of God, Jesus knew that the end was in store from John from the very beginning. I can't help but think that he grieved deeply when the end finally came. Because Matthew goes on to tell us in verse 13, when uh, Jesus heard of it, he departed thence by ship into a desert place apart, and when the people had heard thereof, they followed him on foot out of the cities. It may be that Jesus felt the loss of John when he was told of the execution and that he just needed to be alone for a while. Or it may be that because Herod had begun to wonder if Jesus was the John the Baptist raised from the dead, that Jesus and his disciple, maybe they felt they were in danger and they needed to be in a safer place. Mark gives us even fuller view of the story when he reports that the disciples of John told the apostles and and that the apostles then told Jesus, and Jesus then said to them, He said, Come ye yourselves apart into a desert place and rest a while, for there be many coming and going, and they had no leisure so much as to eat. So whether it was because Jesus needed to be alone for a while, or because he was sensitive to the needs of his disciples, need for safety, and some peace and rest after this sad news, or most uh, likely because all these needs, they got into a boat and they got away for a time of solitude. Now I'm grateful for this picture that we have of the Savior. Jesus Christ walked this earth as God in human flesh, and yet he still affirms the human need for rest and comfort. What a joy it is to serve a master like Jesus. Well, as it turned out, whatever rest they sought didn't last long. Isn't that the way it goes many times? You want to get a little rest, and it just doesn't last long enough. And here's another wonderful thing about the Savior. He wasn't angry about that. He didn't lash out because rest and solitude were taken from him. He reacted as he always does toward those who hunger for him and seek him. He felt compassion toward them and welcomed them to himself and loved them. And he tells us here in verse 14, And Jesus went forth and saw a great multitude and was moved with compassion toward them, and he healed their sick. The Holy Spirit saw fit to lead Matthew to include this very scandalous and grotesque story here in the gospel account of Jesus. The Word of God doesn't try to shield us from the truth of things. It lets us see things as they really are, but it does this so that we might know the things we need to know in order to better follow our wonderful Savior in this dark world. Now, I see three things that this passage teaches us, and it shows them to us through the persons of this story. Now, let's consider them. As we wrap this up, you were probably wondering when I'd get to the outline, right? 
But notice here three important points. First, as we look at King Herod and Herodias and Salome as well, we see something of the character of this fallen world system. The character of this fallen world system. Like Herod, this world has been given over to gratification of sinful desire. The Apostle John warns us, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. And like Herod, the world does not relish being told God's law. It does not welcome having its sin pointed out. Well, think about that. You like it? Nobody likes to have their sins pointed out, and the world certainly doesn't like it. John didn't speak disrespectfully to Herod. He didn't lash out at him. All he did was tell him the truth of what God had said. And that is contrary to God's law that he would have the wife of his brother. And that was enough for Herod to seek to silence him in prison and for Herodias to seek to silence him by death. Now Jesus warned us that this would happen. He told his disciples and us along with them, he said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you are of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. John 15, 18 and 19. And praise God that he sees fit to save some out of this doomed world. I'm so thankful for my own salvation this morning. And I trust each one of you are thankful for that too. If you are a redeemed woman or man, it is because God has graciously delivered you from the power of darkness and conveyed you into the kingdom of the Son of His love. But as a system of values and priorities, as a kingdom over which the devil holds sway, we should never be surprised by the opposition we experience when we speak the truth of God's word in it. When you go and give your testimony, or you give a gospel track, or you let someone know about Jesus, you're going to meet opposition. But don't be surprised. Herod is simply a picture in miniature of how, it, how the world will respond. The world loves its sin. It will hate the Word of God that condemns that sin. It will be irrational in its fear. It will continually misunderstand the Savior. And it will seek to silence those who stand for Him and His gospel. As followers of Jesus Christ, you and I are called to live for a time in the midst of this dark world system. But secondly, we notice here that we see John the Baptist, in John the Baptist, something of the role we play as we live in it. The role we play. John was called to be a prophet. He was to foretell the truth of God and to the darkness of the culture of his day. But so are we. 
Jesus himself told us. He said, ye are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost its savor, wherewith, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick. And it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. We are to be telling people of this world the truth of what God has said, and we're to back that truth up by living it in front of them. They will not like being confronted with the truth of God's word, but we are not to be afraid of their faces, as it says in Jeremiah 1.8. We're not to be afraid of their words, nor dismayed of their looks, as it says in Ezekiel 1.6. Well, we must be today like John was in his day. Speak God's law regarding the sin around us. That's one of the things that's so often missing in our message to the world. Someone has said we're trying to bring them to Jesus without first bringing them to Moses. We need to tell people God's moral standards as they are found in His good law so that they can see the truth of uh, their sin. Someone has simply put it, we need to get them lost before we can get them saved. They need to know that they need a Savior. We need to be like John and not fear to say that the sin of this world, it's not lawful. There's no other way for people to realize they're needed for a Savior until they realize that they're sinners against God's law. They need to be saved. May God help us to be more like John in this way. But then, also like John, we need to point them to the Savior of sinners. I can't think of anything more horrible to do to a person than to tell them that the word of the law that God that condemns them and then leave out the word of grace that saves them. You can't just tell them you're a sinner. You've got to tell them what will save them from their sin. You've got to help us to be like John, to serve this world with two great themes. First, repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We saw that back in chapter 3 and verse 2. And then he said, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And so in all of our doing so, let's be like John in that we're bold and courageous in speaking the saving message of Christ to this world, and we're willing to suffer for him for doing so. God the Father has not commissioned the preaching of the message of his Son to anyone else. He's given it to us. He's not given it to the mighty angels to proclaim. He's given it to us, His redeemed people. It's not His plan for the world to hear it from anyone else but us. And that leads us to consider one more thing that we should notice from this passage as we live in this dark world. The Savior we are to proclaim in the midst of it. The Savior. What a wonderful Savior He is. He isn't like the kings of this world who have dared to have approached Herod for anything. But unlike such earthly kings, our Savior is very approachable. You know, for one thing, He understands us. He feels the pain of our humanity. He knew what it was to grieve over His beloved 
prophet John. He knew what it was to need to get away for some rest and some peace and solitude. Uh, This reminds us of what it says in the book of Hebrews. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but it was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 4.15 And for another thing, Jesus welcomes those who come to him. You try to go to some of the kings of this world and see how big of a welcome you get. Just as he welcomed all those needy people who sought him out and came to him in the deserted place, uh, he will never turn away anyone who comes to him today. The Lord is never too busy for you. He's never too tired. We have a wonderful promise from him. It says, All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. John 6, 37. You see, we have an invitation from him that is more wonderful than could ever be offered by even the most benevolent earthly king. The invitation that is true for everyone who will hear it. And may each one of us take him up on it today. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am lowly, uh, meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so then let's learn the lesson this passage teaches us about how we're to live in this dark world as followers of Jesus. As we look at Herod, let's look at what sort of fallen world this is that God has called us to live in. As we look at John, let's learn what our mission is while living in the midst of it. And as finally as we look at Jesus, let's learn what a wonderful Savior it is that we are to proclaim to the fallen people of this world. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you for the book of Matthew, and I thank you, Lord, for the truth and the real real picture that it gives to us, a picture of that which was taking place in the time of Jesus, and these same things are taking place today. People are steeped in their sin, and we see them all around us, and if we try to share the gospel with them or try to uh, bring them to Jesus, many times we're rejected. Many times uh, they will have none of it. But Lord, thank you for the testimony of John. He knew the truth and he faced the world with the truth. And then thank you, Lord, for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who demonstrated compassion upon a people who didn't deserve it. Lord, there may be someone here this morning who has never trusted Jesus Christ as their Savior. They have no message to share with the world. Maybe there are those here this morning who are maybe not to the extent that Herod was steeped in sin, but yet uh, sin is sin. And sometimes we don't like to hear the truth of the gospel when 
We're in our sin, but Lord, I pray that the Spirit of God would work in hearts today. And we as believers and Christians, people who can be called children of God, saved by your grace, help us to be faithful in our witness. Day by day, help us to pray for opportunities. And Lord, help us be faithful as we go about the work and the opportunities you've given to us. Lord, as we close this service, we pray if there's decisions that need to be made in hearts and lives that there'll be a response to that. And your name would be glorified, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.